Please be turning to Acts chapter 3. There's a lot to explore here, and I'm eager to get into it together with you guys. Uh, the people of God in Jerusalem are, are, are doing church, and it's kind of the first time they've, had to, they've gotten to do this. Um, God had brought them together in a very unique way in Jerusalem at Pentecost, and they're, they're really functioning well. They're worshiping together. They're praying together. Last week we talked pretty in depth about how they cared for one another so well, just in incredible ways, ways that the outside world would look at and say, what's going on there? That, that doesn't make sense that they would sacrifice like that for people. Some of them, they, they didn't know all that well, but they're following the example of Christ himself, right? Who gave up much so that others would have plenty. God had been generous with them. And so they were making it a point that they were going to do the same thing. They were going to be generous with one another. And that kind of love and that kind of support within the early church was the launching pad, the springboard for Christian mission. That's how they knew. They were confident in the love that their brothers and sisters had for them, for one another. And so they knew, I can go with the gospel and, and complete what Jesus had told them as he ascended into heaven. So chapter 2 of Acts is the Holy Spirit preparing the church for everything that Jesus had told them to do and everything that they would be doing in the rest of the book. Really, in the rest of history. And I think we'll see, especially as we go through chapter 3, and then even still as we get into chapter 4, we'll see especially that if the church is going to not just withstand persecution, but thrive in the midst of it, it comes back to what the Spirit of God is doing in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit is moving in and through them and continues to propel Christians not only to meet needs around them in the body, but propel them outwards from the church walls. And so for the next several chapters in Acts, Luke tries to capture this steady spread of Christianity throughout, specifically Jerusalem, because that was the first place that Jesus instructed his followers to spread the gospel. Many people, as we'll see, are changed by what is happening, by, by the miracles that occur, by the preaching. And yet we're going to see this, this war of, of the temples, if you will. Right? The Spirit dwells in the temple of God, and now, as the tongues of fire have proven, God's people are his temple. And yet there are still some in Jerusalem and beyond who want to hold on to the physical temple and they want to resist what the Spirit is doing. And they will do whatever they can to keep things the way that they are, that they're comfortable with, including murder. These people deny the resurrection of Jesus. And they try to squash what they consider a religious insurrection. So in Acts chapter 3, I, I believe that we see an overflow of Acts chapter 2. Everything that the Spirit of God does in Acts chapter 2 overflows into Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3 and, and then beyond. So let's read. We're going to read the first 10 verses of Acts chapter 3. And then we'll pray. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried 
whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, that's called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Verse 7, And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's pray. Lord, the spirit that is at work here in Acts chapter 2 and 3 is the same spirit that is at work in Ramsey Creek in 2023. You've not changed. The things that you want to teach us and show us have not changed. And so we need to hear this. We need to see some similarities to our own hearts, our own lives, to our own time and age in which you've put us. But what you've given us to understand is the same. You are the same. And so it's, it's important for us, and we're grateful, that we have this truth to lay our lives on, to build our lives on, to believe, to say, yes, this is what I want, this is what I know to be true because of the work that the Spirit has done in me. And so, Lord, as we recount and and apply some of these things today, uh, we want an even firmer grip, the Spirit to have an even firmer grip on us, that we might go and live as we're called, by your strength, by your power, and that many might see the effect of our lives, and be changed as a result. May it be for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. So we just just saw thousands of people added to the church. There's there's a buzz, I believe, in Jerusalem going on right here. And the, the Christians here are still going to the temple. They've not abandoned worship in the temple. They're still going. Uh, You can see Peter and John right here in the first verse. They're going to the time of prayer at at the temple. Now, these guys are considered apostles because of their time with Jesus, because of their witness to the resurrection. And so they would be looked up to by by the believers, especially the new ones in Jerusalem. And they're going to pray. They're they're doing this. Remember, these, these early Christians are still Jews with a lot of the traditions that go along with that. Seems like they still participated in some of the practices of Judaism at this point. Many of their Jewish traditions were in no way oppositional to, to Christianity. And so they continued in some of them. Times of collective prayer was one of those things that they went and still did. And really, I think this is 
the first opportunity for evangelism in this early church. Because God had done an incredible work within them, right? They're sharing, they're, they're, they're sacrificing for one another, they're loving one another. And now, as they're continuing with some of these proper traditions like prayer, other people, specifically their Jewish brothers and sisters who are in the temple, are seeing changed lives. And surely they're asking, what's, what's happening here? Now, for, as I mentioned, for some that's intimidating because it's a shakeup of the norm. But for many others, as we'll see, they're intrigued. They're noticing these things. They're saying, what's, what's going on? I think this is, these are kind of the first fruits of Jesus' call to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. Now, most commentators agree that these new believers, though they went to the temple to pray and maybe did some of those other Jewish things, they didn't continue with some of the former Jewish practices concerning sacrifices. They weren't going to offer sacrifices here according to the Mosaic law. They were going to pray. And on their way, as the text reads, they walk by a man who the Bible describes as lame. He doesn't have use of his legs. And it says that he was carried to one of the gates of the temple, the one called Beautiful, every day. And what was his purpose there? To beg for money. The, my, the ESV translates that to ask for alms. Uh, this is just a handout. Um, you can imagine a little tin cup dropping change in there. And the, the reasoning makes sense why his friends or family or whoever it was that carried him here. The reasoning makes sense, right? You've got people that that claim to be religious and moral going to the temple regularly, put him there because they're more likely to help a, a poor guy, right? And And so that's what they do. Now, we don't know for certain where in Jerusalem the beautiful gate was. There's some speculation as to where. But I, I want to consider the contrast in this. <laughs> There's a, a gate called beautiful, and in front of the gate is a broken man. A flawed guy like this for a long time. Now, there were some who were kind to him. They, they consistently, daily carried him here. And on this day, Peter and John cross his path. And he gets their attention, and he asks for alms, and they turn to him, and they say, look at us. Now, perhaps they're, they're saying, look at us like, we don't, obvi- well, obviously we don't have anything to give you. Um, but I think also they're saying, look at us, because a guy who's been asking for alms, begging, here for a long time, you can imagine he's looking beyond the people right in front of him because he does this all the time. He's a veteran beggar, if you will. So he's, he's, he's maybe shaking a can. He's asking for help. He's, he's looking beyond just the people right in front of him. And so Peter and John say, Hey, pay attention. Look at, look here. Uh, I also think it was about more than just getting the man's attention. It was, it was probably kind of forceful, maybe. I mean, if we know Peter at all, we could imagine there's just a frankness and a brashness to him there. And I don't mean like he was being mean, but sort of like a military, like, hey, attention. Stop what you're doing and pay attention here. Do it now without delay. And in verse 5, we see he does this. He, he does. He focuses his gaze on them. He looks at him, and it says... It kind of reveals his heart. What is he expecting here? 
He's expecting a handout. He's expecting them to contribute to his tin cup. He was anticipating financial help, but as we know, he received something a lot better. He received the ability to walk, but actually he received something even better than that. He received the gift of forgiveness of sins, salvation as provided by the name of Jesus. It wasn't Peter's authority that this man was healed by. It was Jesus' authority. And I think the man understands this. Because when he gets up, he doesn't start praising Peter and John. What does he do? The text says that he leaped up. Now, he'd never done this before. He never leapt anywhere. He leaps up and he starts walking and leaping. And again, he's not praising Peter or John. He's praising God. He knew who had healed him. And where does he go? Look at verse 8. So interesting to me. The very first thing he does, he doesn't run home to visit his family. What does he do? Where does he go? It says that he, he jumps up, he's praising God, and he enters the temple. He goes to the temple. And I think this, there's just something here that's so beautiful. If you skip forward, look at Acts chapter 4, verse 22. When this event happened in this man's life, verse 22 of chapter 4 tells us, the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This guy was 40 years old when he was healed. He was born with this issue, and he had been dependent on other people for his entire life. Apparently, he had some good people around him who would take him there every day. But he still relied on other people for his survival. If it wasn't for others, he wouldn't have survived. He had very little control over how his life went. And it all stemmed from the fact that he was born lame. Now, if you remember, when the Israelites were charged with offering a sacrifice, they couldn't use a lame animal. They were instructed not to do that. Lameness in an animal made it unfit for sacrifice in the temple. Couldn't go in. And and likely, that's how this man felt. Unfit for being in God's presence. Now, he may have felt forgotten by God. He may have been resentful and frustrated with the hand that he was dealt. But now his life had been changed. He'd been given a gift That he never expected. It says immediately his ankles and his feet were made strong. And then immediately he responds by praising the God who's healed him. Then it says he immediately goes into the temple. Maybe for the first time in a long time. Maybe the first time ever. And he's testifying with his life and with his voice of what God had done for him. Forty years of being unfit to enter the presence of God. Now, he's running and he's leaping into the temple, shouting praise. It helps us kind of see what Jason was talking with the kids about this morning. It's good and right to meet needs around us. 
right? Humanitarian efforts that address physical needs are right and good. The book of James makes this really clear. But they're not the end goal of Christianity. Early 1900s pastor G. Campbell Morgan says this. That was really helpful. To give silver and gold to a cripple is a good thing indeed if that's the best you can do for him. But it only maintains him in his disability. To give him strength to walk is to set him free from the need of alms. This is the difference between Christianity and all merely humanitarian efforts for the relief of the incapable. Apart from Christ, and hear this, apart from Christ, humanitarian efforts deal with surroundings but cannot touch the man. Humanitarian efforts plants a garden around a man and leaves him to neglect the garden. Christianity remakes the man and then he tends the garden. Now, we're grateful. I'm so grateful for Christian organizations and ministries who understand this concept that meeting physical needs is something that we ought to do as believers. And yet, meeting physical needs is simply creating inroads to proclaiming the truth of the gospel. That's a person's real need. So benevolent ministries, humanitarian efforts, whatever you want to call them, are simply stepping stones for gospel opportunities. Handing out bottles of water water to thirsty people is good, but it quenches their thirst for a moment. Christians whose faith is real, we're going to do that. We're going to recognize and meet needs like that, but helping someone understand their need for the living water, that's what it's really about. That's why mercy ministries should exist. And so that's why we as a church want to pour our, our finances and our resources and our energy and effort into mercy ministries that aim to meet those physical needs as a way of meeting spiritual needs and helping people understand their real need. Now notice what Peter and John do here. They had just seen the spirit work in miraculous ways, right? The tongues of fire, the speaking of different languages, thousands of people coming to faith and added to the church, and yet they stop for one guy. A guy who'd probably been overlooked, passed over, and helps us see, coupled with these ideas of mercy ministries, is the truth, and really the fuel, is because that every life has value. Every human life has intrinsic value. Guys, our planet, the grasslands, the, the rainforests, the deserts, the oceans, all of these things are important for Christians to exercise proper dominion over and care of. We've been called to do that. But God didn't create trees in his image. God didn't create dolphins in his image. They were spoken into being, but they weren't breathed into like Adam was. Every human life has worth because people are made in the likeness of God. And John and Peter stopped for one guy. I would encourage you, if you feel alone, if you feel overlooked, remember, God's not forgotten you. And if in ministry we feel as though reaching out and making effort to minister to just one person is an insignificant task, 
we need to pay close attention to our time in Acts. Sharing help with those in need is the gospel proclamation of our lives. Sharing the words of Christ is the gospel proclamation of our lips. Both of those things are right and both of them are necessary in our world. Now, Peter, through the power of the Spirit and by the authority given to him by Jesus, was a channel of blessing to this man. As I see it here, Peter isn't the power source. He's the conduit through which it flowed. The source, as Peter identifies, is the name and power of the resurrected Messiah. He says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. But because Peter was a willing vessel... The power of God was displayed through him and faithful people like him. And we'll see it more and more in the book of Acts. The Spirit prompted him to stop and to pay attention to this man. And because of his obedience, lives were changed. How often do we miss the prompting of the Spirit because we're too busy? Because we're too focused on the next thing that we have to do preoccupied with those other things in life, or maybe just too out of step with the Spirit to even hear what he's saying. Oh, that our lives of obedience and walking in step with the Spirit would result in changed lives in those around us still today. Because God still pours out his blessing through willing and faithful people. Is that us? Now, something really blew my mind this week. As we were studying, I just have to share it with you. How old did we say this man was when he was healed? 40 years old. Over 40, at least 40 years old. We'll just call it 40. 40 years old, this man had been lame. How old was Jesus when he ascended to heaven? 33. Do you know what this means? Would you believe that Jesus probably walked by this guy more than once. Peter and John probably had too. We know from some text we'll look at in just a moment, we know that Jesus healed people like this with the same kind of ailment. And so the question, I imagine, raises in our minds, why didn't Jesus heal this guy? Why did he leave him? In that state. Why didn't he heal him? Matthew 21 records an instance where Jesus did this. It says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Why didn't he heal this guy? And we're not told specifically why, so all we can do is just speculate. But I have a feeling that it had something to do with this sovereign encounter with Peter and John. That was to come. Now you remember John chapter 9, there's a man who's born blind. And Jesus comes upon him. And the question is, is asked by his disciples and those around. They say, well, Jesus, why is he like this? What happened? Was it he that sinned or was it his parents that sinned? That he was born blind. Jesus' answer probably surprised most of them. He says, look, it wasn't him that sinned, it wasn't his parents that sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So now, when 
Fast forward, when Peter and John see this lame man sitting there, there isn't the question of, well, did he sin? Or maybe it was his parents who sinned. It was instead just an opportunity for the works of God to be displayed and Jesus to be glorified. After 40 years of begging, this man probably understandably seems to have just kind of resigned himself to that state. This is my life. This is it. He didn't consider healing to be an option, likely, especially now that Jesus, the great healer, was no longer there. He had no hope. He was just simply looking to be supported in the condition that he was in. But God had something better in mind. He wanted to completely change this man's condition. After healing all those people in Matthew 21, we find out if you keep reading in 21, 22, and 23, that the chief priests and the scribes were indignant with Jesus. Uh, that indignant is just a word that means really mad. They're really mad at Jesus. And they hassle him every time he teaches. And they're constantly looking for a way to either trap him and throw him in prison or just get rid of him altogether and kill him. And in Matthew 23, just a couple chapters after he heals all of these people, he's standing, as it were, over Jerusalem, and he laments. He says, oh, that you would just come back. You would come to me. I want to gather you together, but you won't do it. But in Acts chapter 3, the setting is different. Jesus' time had, had come. He'd, he'd died. He'd risen from the grave. He'd ascended to the Father's right hand with authority. And then he'd given that power to his followers to take his message to the, to the ends of the earth. To right there. And then the, the circles got bigger all the way to the ends of the earth. History was primed like never before for these events of this day. Hearts were being prepared for the kingdom like never before. And at the sight of this man, who they knew to be completely lame for over 40 years, he's there standing, leaping. You know, I, I just imagine he couldn't stand still for very long. Um, but he's there with Peter and John, and they see him, and they recognize what, it, what had happened. And they're just filled, not with, not with anger, and indignance, like the chief priests and scribes in Matthew 21 and 22, instead they're filled with awe and amazement. Look at verses 9 and 10. And they saw him, he was walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who'd sat at the gate, the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They didn't know what it was just yet that had happened, but they knew there was no denying that something miraculous had taken place. This is not a normal instance. And they knew it. See, the guy, he really just wanted a handout to get through another day. But he got way more than he expected. Think of the prodigal son. He came home recognizing and repenting of his sin. He came home just wanting a job, right? He told his dad that. He said, I'm not worthy to be counted your son, I'll just work for you as a servant. He knew that he'd forsaken his birthright. He'd given it up. All he wanted was a job. But what did he get? The finest robe laid on his back. The ring put on his finger. A party thrown 
in his honor. I think we come kind of the same way, don't we? We know we've given up any right to deserve God's grace in our life. And if we're really serious about evaluating our own hearts, we all find ourselves in that position. And I don't, I don't deserve it. I don't, I haven't earned this. I, Lord, just, I just want enough to get me through the day. That's it. But in Christ, God gives people so much more than they expect or deserve. In His great mercy, God imparts to them the miracle of regeneration, of new birth. Peter puts it this way later in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Get this. Instead of a handout, Christians are made co-heirs with Christ. You don't deserve that. But you're given it in Him. Understanding that this is true in our own lives and hearts ought to invoke the same kind of response in us as it did in this man. Right? It says all the people saw him walking and praising God. You, I imagine you couldn't keep this guy quiet if you tried. And they, they kind of do try. It doesn't work. His joy was on display for everyone to see. It was unashamed. It was probably unrestrained. He's probably the loudest one in that temple that day. He was giving glory to God. And the result of all of this, the sign of this miracle, his response, the joy that was so exuberantly displayed for all to see, the result of this was wonder and amazement. But we still haven't answered the question that might be bugging us still. Why didn't Jesus heal this man earlier? Well, everyone who saw this was amazed. They didn't necessarily believe, but they were filled with wonder. And it opened the door for another sermon. <laughs> it opened the door for Peter to proclaim the good news all over again. Now, peek forward to, the, to chapter 4 again. Our brother James is going to preach on this chapter in a couple of weeks. But look at chapter 4, verse 4. It's a little bit of a teaser here. It says, many of those who had heard the word, and that's talking about the, the sermon that Peter's preaching in chapter 3, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, I've read this week that maybe this is 5,000, including the 3,000 that had already come uh, earlier in the book of Acts. I don't see why you would interpret it that way. It seems like a fresh 5,000 to me. But either way, this is a whole lot of people. Thousands of people. After Peter preaches in chapter 3, they're arrested at the beginning of the chapter, of chapter 4, and thousands of people believe as a result. Could this be the reason for the delay in this man's healing? 
If a man was born blind in order to display the works of God and his glory, couldn't it also be that this man was healed at this particular point in history for the same reason? Look at the outcome of his testimony. Now, I think if, if, if we're honest, if we polled Christians, most of us would be overjoyed if our testimony was used by God for just one other person to hear and believe as a result. You, you understand what I'm saying? If, if my life accounted for nothing but one person to hear and believe the gospel, worth it. Look at the effect of this man's testimony. Thousands of people believed. Now, God's in control of the effect of our lives and testimonies and the effect that they have on others. But if we've forgotten the joy of being healed from the sickness of sin by the power of Jesus, may this story serve as the thing that fans that joy back into flame. Uh, it's in your notes towards the end, quote by Warren Wearsby. I'll read that together this morning. This is so helpful in me understanding and ap- applying this. He says, it's easy to see in this man an illustration of what salvation's like. He was born lame, and all of us are born unable to walk so as to please our God. Our father Adam had a fall and passed his lameness on to all of his descendants. This man was also poor, and as and we as sinners are bankrupt before God, unable to pay the tremendous debt that we owe him. He was outside the temple, and all sinners are separated from God, no matter how near to the door they might be. The man was healed wholly by the grace of God, and the healing was immediate. He gave evidence of what God had done by walking, leaping, and praising God. And now that he could stand, there was no question where this man stood. Where do you stand? If you've not believed on Jesus Christ as Savior, like this man, you can be made whole. Through the power of God, as Peter put it, you can be born again to a living hope in Christ. Christian, is your testimony one of God's goodness? Is it evident in your life Notice the progression of verse 8, the progression of joy here. I thought was very interesting. It says that he stood. Again, he'd never done that before in his own power. He stood, and then he began to walk, and then he moved into an all-out sprint into the presence of God, leaping and praising him all the way. So he didn't stay just standing motionless. He moved in increasingly big motor skills. He ran and leaped in praising God. Is that the way that joy looks in our life? Or are we stuck on the ground feeling sorry for ourselves? Maybe you're not ready to take off into a dead sprint or jump up and down. But I hope that today is a reminder of God's goodness to you in Christ. And to choose to stand firm on that joyful fact. Though undeserving, he's given his son. 
let God's notice of you and his love for you move you from standing to walking to running into his presence and out into the world, leaping and praising his name, proclaiming his goodness, starting here and then working outward to the ends of the earth. What a beautiful picture of salvation that we see here in this man's testimony. Be encouraged. Your testimony may not be that you literally walked for the first time at 40 years of age. It may be much simpler than that. Maybe God grabbed your heart at a young age. Your testimony is still powerful in other people understanding the gospel. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Take it. Maybe sometimes leaping and praising God all the way. He's certainly deserving of it. Let's pray. Lord, you have control of all history. And in your sovereign wisdom, though Jesus maybe walked by this man on earth, we see a testimony of a huge harvest of believers as a result of his healing here. And so, Lord, I certainly don't know the outcome of any of our lives. And yet, I would imagine that you still operate in similar ways. In your love, you know the timing, the right moments of it all. And there may be something that we're enduring that you have not relieved us from. And we're asking that question, why have you not answered this prayer, Lord? Why have you not come through? Why have you not healed this thing? Why haven't you fixed it yet? Lord, remind us again from this text of your timing and how much better it is than ours. And if we truly believe and have faith, our deepest desire is that you would receive glory. And so, Lord, in those situations where we may feel like you've forgotten or overlooked us, encourage our hearts, remind us that you've not done that. You've not forgotten. But instead, your plan is right. May we trust in that. May we encourage one another to believe and to continue to trust even when it's hard. May we, we make our difficulties known and our brothers and sisters aware so that we can be encouraged and prayed for. So that we might move in our joy from, from just motionless to movement to an all-out sprint to tell people about Christ. Even in the face of persecution, we take it and go because people need to hear it. We needed to hear it. And in your mercy, you have shown us kindness. We believe that you'll do that for others as we are faithful to share. Give us boldness to do that in Christ's name. Amen.